Thank you, Andrew. You know, I've noticed that it's human nature for us to lose enthusiasm about things over time. I mean, we just get over stuff, right? Uh, if you've bought a car, you know what this is like. Um, there's, there's a window of time, even if it's a used car, where it's new to you, there's a window of time where you just baby that thing, right? You, it's a new car, it kind of smells good still, and so nobody's allowed to bring food in the car, you know, everybody has to make sure their shoes are clean before they get in the car. When you park the car, you park it away from other cars. You don't want somebody opening their door and dinging it. And you just, you just think about the car and you take extra special care of it. But then that inevitable moment happens, you know. Uh, you back into a light pole, somebody bumps into you, somebody scratches the car. If you have kids, this comes rather quickly, I would say, uh, within the first week or so. Uh, there's a spill, somebody pukes in the car, and then the thing is over. It's just like, oh man, and then you say to your spouse, well, I guess we can't have nice things, right? And that's how it goes. And then the thing just goes back to being a thing again, right? It just, you're kind of over it. It's not new anymore. It's just kind of, now you can actually use it, and just goes back to being a thing. And now you don't, maybe don't do the maintenance as religiously as you did. You don't think about it as much. It kind of changes your behavior towards it, because you're just kind of over it. It's like, well, whatever. That's, the, that's yesterday's news. That's, that's old stuff. And I'm actually a big fan of when that happens with stuff, because I think then stuff can just be stuff. I always I treat my car like a mobile locker. It's got everything I need for life in there, and it's a mess. But it's, it works, it functions, it helps me do what I need to do. But what I'm afraid of is that I think something like this happens in our relationship with the Lord as well. You know, when we first come to the Lord, it's like Christmas morning every morning, right? You wake up and there's just, just joy this, this life, this energy, because Jesus has forgiven all your sins, wiped them clean, made them white as snow, and you've received this good news, and it's like your feet barely touch the ground when you walk. You just, you'd run through a wall for Jesus. He's so precious to you. There is, there's a giant yes in your heart for, for anything Jesus asks you to do, but over time, there's, there's the stains, right? There's the bumps, there's the door dings, there's the rear endings in, in discipleship that happen. And sadly, I think we tend to get over it. We just tend to get over what Jesus has done for us. Start losing sight of it, and worst of all, it's reflected in our actions. Jesus isn't as precious to us anymore. We sort of stop thinking about him so much, and maybe start thinking about other things. It's kind of like we've got bigger fish to fry. So his, his agenda is not so much on our minds as our agenda anymore. We begin thinking of the cost of following him and maybe thinking that it's too much. Wow, this Jesus thing is taking up a lot of my life. It's taking up a lot of my time. Maybe even begin complaining about the life that he's called us to. I'm not sure where you're at today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. Thank you for coming. Maybe somebody said, hey, do you want to go get the best cinnamon roll in town? And they surprised you. It's actually a church. Sorry, they weren't supposed to do that. Uh, but you're here today. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Uh, you wouldn't know what this is like to have Jesus get old because Jesus has never been new to you. And we're praying that today Jesus is brand new to you and that you get to experience that joy and that life that comes with that. But maybe you're here today and you say, yeah, I have experienced that. Or maybe you're new to the faith and it hasn't happened yet. I can promise you this is something that is um, stable, consistent for all believers. This is a struggle that we all face at one point or another in our discipleship that we tend to get over what Jesus has done for us. We tend to move past it, and we're in week two of our series called Encounters with Jesus, and today 
in our text, we find a beautiful example of what we should look like as lifelong disciples of Jesus. We find a picture of what Jesus would say, hey, this is what I want your heart to look like as you follow me, all right? And we're going to see the opposite picture as well, what we should not look like. So here's where we're going today for you, you people that love an outline. As we move through our text here in Luke, I want us to notice three things. First of all, the picture of what a true disciple looks like, that picture of the heart of a true disciple, and the picture of what we shouldn't look like. We see both examples in the text. So the picture, the parable that Jesus tells that helps us to understand what we're supposed to understand, and then the puzzle that we're left with. So the picture, the parable, the puzzle, and I get bonus points for the alliteration. Okay, so here we go. Let's dive right in. First, a little background on the story, because this story that happens in Luke, this encounter, is not something that makes sense to me anyway. It's not something that you would find happening in your every, everyday life. Um, what we know from verse 35, the verse right before our text today, is that Jesus has been accused of something, right? Um, there's a buzz around town about Jesus, and what's that word? What's that buzz? Well, the buzz is that Jesus hangs out with some pretty bad people. They call him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were so hated, they had their own category of sinner all to themselves. Um, but Jesus was friends with them. They said he eats with them, he hangs out with them, he's friends with them. And the religious leaders of the day didn't look too kindly upon that. You know, wherever Jesus went, you were sure to find some of the worst sinners of society. And they thought, that's a bad sign. This man surely couldn't be a prophet, as we read in our text today. How can this guy be a teacher of the law if he associates with such people? And lest we judge them too harshly, don't we say some of these kinds of things, right? Um, have you said to your kids before, uh, bad company corrupts good character? Or show me your friends and I'll show you your future. There's some truth to that, right? If you hang around certain people, there's a good chance you'll become like them. You'll start adapting some of their behaviors, but not Jesus, right? He came for the sick, not for the healthy. So he was with them, hanging out with them, drawn to them. The Pharisees thought that people had a sin disease that could be caught, but Jesus went to them. And in Luke, I think Luke orders his gospel in such a way to include this story right after the verse that says Jesus was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's almost like Luke is saying, I want to answer this big question for you. Why does Jesus hang out with these sinful people all the time? And I think the answer in this text is that Jesus hangs out with them because, number one, he knows he can forgive them, but number two, he believes they make some of the best disciples as we're going to see in our text today. So let's dive in to looking at that picture of what a true disciple looks like. The Gospel of Luke is what I call the underdog's gospel. If you're someone that likes to root for the underdog, you love the Gospel of Luke. Um, I love the Gospel of Luke because of that. I like David and Goliath kind of stories. I like to root for the underdog, um, except for when it comes to the Golden State Warriors. I love to root for the underdog normally. But, but Luke is always highlighting these outcasts of society, people that are pushed to the margins, people that society doesn't pay attention to, people that, are, that people look down their noses at in society. So people like prostitutes and tax collectors, children, women, the poor. Luke is always showing how Jesus is elevating those people, right? And this story is no, no different. And in fact, he even goes as far as to contrast how Jesus treats the poor and and the outcast to that of the religious and the rich. We find that Jesus has received an invitation here to eat at a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisee's name is Simon. 
Now, Simon was a super common name back then, so lots of people were named Simon, and so we have to be careful we don't get it confused with other Simons in the Bible. Um, This is not Simon Peter, the disciple. It's also not Simon the leper. There's another story in the Gospels of an anointing story where Jesus is anointed at Simon the leper's house and anointed for his burial, and this is a totally different story. This is Simon the Pharisee. And the Pharisees were really curious about Jesus. So they're teachers of the law, and Jesus was a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. And so likely this was an invitation from one teacher to another, because Simon calls him teacher. Why don't you come over and let's talk doctrine. Let's talk what you've been teaching, because there's a lot of buzz about it. And so Simon's really curious, and he invites Jesus over. It's likely the purpose for the meeting. And of course, the purpose for this meeting gets blown up pretty quickly once their unexpected guest arrives this sinful woman. And you might think it's extremely odd. I mean, just imagine if this happened in your house. You invite somebody over, you're intending to have a good conversation, and then someone comes in and makes this scene. You think, well, how in the world does this happen, right? That's not something that would go on in our day, but this actually was common back then as well. Our text says that this woman learned that Jesus would be reclining at the Pharisee's house. So this was likely some sort of a a Sabbath meal, maybe a public celebration of Jesus as teacher. And these meals would be open to the public so that public people could come in and just sit along the walls and eavesdrop on the the conversation of these learned people. So they could kind of learn that way and they could grow that way. And it it was common for them to do that. So this is not out of line for her to show up. And, and she's not rebuked for that. She's, she's, she's not, they don't even make mention that, well, hey, why are you here? Um, she's criticized for her character for sure, but not for showing up. So we know that that's not out of the ordinary. And the text calls her a woman of the city, a sinner. Now, it doesn't specifically say what that sin was that was so public that she got this. I mean, how'd you like to have that behind your name? A sinner. Dave Sinkraven, a sinner. Wow, that, wouldn't be, that would not be a great reputation to have, but she's got it for some reason. Um, some of the things that would have made her notably called this, she could have been a prostitute, um, she could have been an adulteress, she could have been married to someone like a tax collector. You know, tax collectors were hated so much that even your spouse was called a sinner because they were married to you, you know? So any of those things could have gotten her this label of being a sinful woman, a sinner, And interestingly enough, if we look at the text, this woman doesn't say anything in the entire encounter. Do you notice that? Not one word. But her actions speak louder than a thousand words. Brothers and sisters, this woman, she is the exact picture of what a disciple ought to be. She's the exact picture. She's what we're supposed to be. And Jesus notes that in stark contrast, her actions... Um, far out out exceed the actions of the Pharisee, his host. So she's what we're supposed to be, and Simon the Pharisee is used as a negative example. Let's look at these three main actions that Jesus points out in contrast to Simon's. So so the woman, she, she does her three actions, and then Jesus actually points them all out to Simon. I love how he says that. He's like looking at the woman and saying, Simon, do you see her? You know, let's look at verse 44, how Jesus points the first thing out. He says, in verse 44, You gave me no water for my feet, but she, wet, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Okay, so a little background here. 
They didn't eat like we eat. They weren't at tables sitting down, so they, they would recline on these couches, and their heads would be close by the table, their feet away from the table. Okay, so she comes in, and it was common in that day for a host to wash their guests' feet, or at least have their servant wash their guests' feet, because they traveled on these dirty, dusty roads. And just imagine being at the circus, right? What are they doing at the circus behind all the animals? Scooping up crap the whole time. So if you have roads that are dusty and dirty and the mode of transportation is animals, they're literally walking on crap-filled roads all the time. Their feet get really dirty. It's a really nasty thing, right? And they're wearing sandals. So when you show up at someone's house, it's a really welcomed thing to get a bowl of water for your feet. So you don't have to eat and your feet are stinky and smelly. And he, Simon doesn't give Jesus anything. Like that was a common courtesy to, if you're not going to wash your guest's feet, just at least give them a bowl of water. He doesn't do anything. So this woman comes in, and she, I don't think she planned this at all to come in and, and just lose it, but she comes in, she has her alabaster flask. I think she's planning to anoint his feet, to show him this, this high level of appreciation, and she just loses it. She can't contain her love for Jesus. She's just messed up by it. She can't say anything, and she just starts to weep. And the text says she wet his feet with her tears. That word wet in the Greek literally means rain showers. It's the same word used for rain showers. So she's not just like whimpering up there. She is sobbing, dripping fluid onto Jesus' feet. And then I think she's like, what am I going to do now? Well, her, his feet need washing. She, grab, she, she takes his feet and wipes them with her hair. All that dirt, all that nastiness, she's cleaning it off with her hair. So Jesus is like, you didn't even give me a bowl of water. She washed my feet with her tears in her hair. Verse 45, Jesus says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. So in that culture, in that custom, it's very much like other places in the world still today. It was common greeting to greet a friend with a kiss on the cheek. Um, that was just to say, hey, it's good to see you as a, as a sign of respect. It was a sign of appreciation. But a kiss on the feet was a sign of incredible awe, um, incredible value, incredible worth and dignity. So this woman's saying, I I'm not going to just give you the customary kiss on the cheek. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm honoring you. This is something you reserve for kings and royalty. And she did not cease to kiss Jesus' feet. Simon didn't even give Jesus a, a customary kiss on the cheek. And then verse 46, Jesus says, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So in that day, um, olive oil was abundant everywhere, and it was custom to give an honored guest, a guest you appreciate, just a little bit of oil to anoint their head with. Um, but Simon doesn't do anything. You know, you get in the picture, like, Jesus is not a big deal to Simon. He's just not. He's, he's, he's over it. He's not that big of a deal. And she comes in, and she's got this alabaster flask. And it doesn't say expensive in Luke's gospel, but in the other gospels, the other anointing story, it says this is expensive. Some, some, um, some translations even talk about, like, maybe how long it would have taken for her to earn this particular um, ointment. Right? Maybe up to a year's wages. And these were kept in like these stone um, vases almost with long necks. And the neck had to be broken. It was kind of a one-time use sort of thing. So once it was out, it was gone. And she takes this expensive ointment that she probably saved up a long time to get. She breaks 
the neck of it and spills it all on Jesus' feet. She just wastes it all on him. Something that she probably had to work a long time for. She spills it all on Jesus. In that one moment, she's like, I got this one shot to show him how much I love him, to show him how much he means to me, to show my devotion. What's all this saying about this woman and about Simon? Well, it says about her that Jesus is precious to her. Jesus Jesus was everything to her. It says that she understood the depths of her sin. She had faith that Jesus could forgive her. Obviously, they had met before, and Jesus had declared that she could be forgiven. And a response of love, devotion to Jesus was exactly the response that Jesus commends here. He says she's the ideal disciple. This is appropriate for a disciple of Jesus. She hadn't gotten over what Jesus had done for her. He was precious to her. And with loads of irony, Jesus makes her the shining example to this squeaky clean Pharisee. He's like, Simon, look at verse 44. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Which is a funny question to ask, right? She's made an absolute spectacle. You don't, you don't ever see this kind of thing. This didn't happen every day. Everybody's looking at it. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? He's looking at her while talking to him, which is a cool rhetorical device. If you ever want to get some, a point across... He's saying, I want you to notice her, Simon. I want you, do you see her? Do you see, the, do you see her heart, Simon? I have something to teach you, Simon. You're a teacher of the law, but this sinful woman, she has something to teach you. Do you see the way that she loves me? Do you see the way that she's received her forgiveness with such gratitude in her heart? Do you see the way that I'm precious to her, Simon? I have something to teach you, and I'm going to use her to do it. It's a powerful moment. He says, you see, she says, this, this woman sees way more clearly than you do. So she gets it. She gets what I've done for her. But do you see that, Simon? And I think that's the question we should be asking as well in light of this woman's example to us. Do you see her life and does your life look like that? Do you have an accurate picture of what Jesus did for you or have you gotten over it? Is it kind of like NBD? You know, whatever. Yeah, Jesus forgave me. Who cares? That was a long time ago. Is Jesus precious to you still, or is he yesterday's news? Is he worth spending all your riches on? Is he worth losing your reputation over? Will you do anything for this Jesus? I'll never forget the story of Bill Bright. Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and and, uh, he did so many things in evangelical Christianity, but He's well known for sharing his personal faith over 10 times a day with people. The people that were in charge of carting him around, they just drove him nuts because he's always sharing Jesus with the cab driver, always sharing Jesus with you know, the, the person that's getting him from one place to another or whatever. He's just always in a conversation about Jesus. And they were interviewing Bill towards the end of his life, and they said, Bill, you know, asking him questions about ministry, and then they got to this point, and they said, Bill, what does Jesus mean to you? And he just got dead silent. This man who was eloquent, big, hulking man, just sat in his chair and began to weep. He just began to weep. He had no words. There were no words to describe what Jesus meant to Bill Bright. All he could do was weep. I think that's, that's the exact picture here. See, Bill, after serving Jesus for many, many years, still hadn't gotten over what Jesus had done for him. 
Jesus was precious to him still, just like for this woman. And I'm wondering, is Jesus precious to you still? Or have you gotten over it? Leads us to the parable that Jesus tells us to, to help us grasp what he's getting at here. And the parable is short and to the point. It's only two verses. I love how Jesus reads their minds, by the way, before this. You know, they're not saying any of these things. They're just thinking it. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. It's an advantage of being Jesus. You can read everybody's minds. But he says, There's, a moneylender has two debtors. One of them owes about three months' wages, and one of them owes about a, a year and a half's wages. So this is a big sum of money, right? Both of these are big sums of money. And the, the, the major twist in the parable is just that the moneylender, think of a bank, just forgives the debts. And they don't do that. How many of you work for a bank? We've got several bankers in here. I've worked for banks before. Never saw that in the policy ever. Well, at this point, we just say, don't worry about it. We got it. Never happens. No, there's collections one, there's collections two, there's collections three, there's um, you know, seizure of assets, then there's bankruptcy for you if you still don't pay the debt. Right? It's a terrible, horrible process. They never just say, well, don't worry about it. We'll just forgive it. But that's because in the parable, the lender represents God. The lender represents God. He doesn't operate the way he should with us. He cancels our debt when he should hold us to it. And Jesus asks Simon, he says, which one do you think will love the money lender more? And of course, people are pretty cautious when responding to Jesus because there are trick questions. So cautiously, Simon goes, I suppose the one who is forgiven more, maybe? Jesus affirms his conclusion, and he sums it up by saying, yeah, whoever's forgiven much will love much, and whoever's forgiven little will love little. But there's a puzzle in that, isn't there? There's a, there's a puzzle in what Jesus just said there. And maybe on its face, it seems like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But there's a puzzle in what he just said. Jesus is obviously referring to Simon as the person who's for, been forgiven little. Right? He makes that really clear. He says, hey, this woman, she's got many sins. She's been forgiven much, so that's why she loves me like that. That's why she loves much. And so he's, insinu- he's um, intending for Simon to put himself in the other, per- in the other position in the story. Right? You've obviously been forgiven little, so you love little. That's why Simon's struggling with his lackluster love. But the puzzle is this. He's saying, Simon, your little sin is actually a big problem. It's a big problem. It's not a problem from the standpoint of Jesus forgiving it. He's already proven that he can forgive the sinful woman's big pile of sin. But it's a problem from the perspective. It's a problem from the point of Simon's perspective. He's got a perspective problem. I mean, when we think about it, is there really anyone who falls into this category that Jesus makes here? Someone who's forgiven little. Does any one of us fit into that category? I don't care how clean you are. You fit into that category? Jesus is playing a little game with him here. Is there anyone that has been forgiven little? I mean, certainly we could say that some people have committed fewer like outward noteworthy sins than other people. Some people are just wilder and and live away from Jesus for longer. And some people are just more straight-laced and and they don't do many wrong things. But Jesus, since, since he started teaching, since the beginning of his ministry, has been redefining sin for us. He says, hey, sin's not just something you do with your hands and your feet and your body. Sin's something you do with your heart, with your eyes, with your mind. In other words, you don't always see it when someone sins. 
And not only that, Jesus, in other places in Luke's gospel and other gospels, he redefines sin, that sin isn't just the bad things you do. Sin is also all the wrong reasons you do the right things. All of your attempts to save yourself, that's sinful too. So Jesus has a puzzle for us here. No matter who we are, our sin is a big problem. No matter what our past looks like, we haven't been forgiven little. That's what Jesus is getting at. He says, Simon, your sins are little to you. To you. And therefore, your love is little too. You don't see your need for forgiveness, and therefore, Simon, I won't be precious to you. Not like this woman. You don't see it. You're blind to it. And I'm wondering where you are today, Life Church. You know, maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Dave, I, I'm not a Christian. And uh, boy, I could not resonate more with a character in the Bible than this sinful woman. I mean, I got wagons of sin I brought with me today. I got U-Hauls of sin. And I just don't see how I could fit in this whole Christianity kind of thing. And I would say there's great news for you today. Because Jesus says, number one, he'd like to hang out with you. And he doesn't care what people say about it. But number two, Jesus says, I can forgive those wagons full of sin. I can forgive all that. And on top of that, I think you'd make an ideal disciple. I think you'd be one of my best. I think you'd run through a wall for me once I forgive you. That's what he's saying. She's the ideal disciple. For those of you who are Christians, I'm wondering which person are you more like? Which picture are you more identifying with in the story? Are you like the sinful woman who's grasped the depth of her sin, faith that Jesus could remove it, and she responds with immense gratitude and love for what's been done for her? And that's the picture of what we should be as disciples. Or are you more like Simon? Your good works and your pretty decent past are getting in the way of you realizing that you were in really bad shape when Jesus found you too. Maybe you weren't in the bars or the strip clubs, but maybe you were dealing with something even more deadly like pride. You know? Maybe the message for you here is that you need to look at your life, and if Jesus isn't precious to you, maybe you need to ask, have I missed something, or have I gotten over something? If he's just kind of no big deal to you anymore, if, if you're just not considering what he has for your life anymore, if, if, if his opinion of you just doesn't matter much anymore, have I lost something? Did I miss something, or have I just gotten over it like it's no big deal anymore? Maybe you need to cry out, Lord, make me like this sinful woman. Give me her heart again. Um, I'll never forget the description. Flannery O'Connor has um, a description of one of her characters, one of her novels, and she describes him like this. She says, there was a deep wordless blackness in him that knew the best way to avoid Jesus was by avoiding sin. Maybe some of you are trying to avoid Jesus by avoiding sin. You're like, hey, if I keep myself clean enough, I don't, I don't have to bend the knee to Jesus. If I keep myself far enough away from the, the notable sins, I don't have to get on my knees and beg for his mercy. And he's saying, why don't you just do it anyway? Come on, your little sin is a big problem too. I can forgive you. I can set you free. All your effort, all your striving to save yourself, that's not doing it either. You need me. That's what he's saying to you. He's saying, come. Come. He's got forgiveness and freedom waiting for you as well. He's saying, come be like this sinful woman with this, this heart 
repentant and full of faith and love. In the end, what does Jesus say to this woman? He says what we're all hoping to hear, right? He says, your sins are forgiven, which of course creates a huge buzz. Ah, Who's this guy who can forgive sins? And then he says, your faith has saved you. And I love that, right? It wasn't her actions towards Jesus. It wasn't her spending her money on this, this ointment that saved her. No, 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 no. And she knew that. She's like, no good thing that I can do at this point is going to save me. I can't, I can't make up for all the wrong. That's a joke. I, I can't do that. No, she's simply responding to what's already been done for her. It was her faith in Jesus that saved her, but her actions demonstrated that her faith was real. I'm wondering today, what are your actions saying to you about Jesus, about his place in your life? Did they say that he's precious to you? Do you say that, do your actions say that he's forgiven you of a lot, that, that he means a ton to you? Or are you over it? Uh, friends, it's been a prayer of mine since coming to Jesus. I, I have this personality that tends to get really excited about things, and that tends to go away quickly. Uh, I just get really fired up, and then I, I move on to the next thing. And, I, and I, I've prayed, like, Lord, if there's one thing in my life, don't let me get over, it's you. Like, keep that in front of me. Somehow, will you please not let me get over that? Will you please not let that become old news to me? Because I know what happens when it becomes old news, just the back of my brain, and I don't care about it. And my prayer for you is the same. Lord, don't let us forget. Don't let us get over what you've done for us. Make us like this sinful woman, completely aware of our deep need for you, filled with faith that you can cancel our debts, and overflowing with love and gratitude for our precious Savior. Make us disciples like that. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example you give us in your word of this sinful woman and of Simon the Pharisee. Lord, we're aware of our tendency to just get over stuff and for stuff to become old and for us to lose enthusiasm, Lord. And so we're asking by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you keep our testimony in front of us? Would you keep what you've done for us, how much you've forgiven us, how much you've set us free from in front of us so that we can live like this sinful woman, full of faith, full of passion for you, full of adoration for you, full of appreciation for what you've done. I pray the world would see that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.